If you're new here, when you want a drink, don't. Stop treating your alcoholism with a drink. Take the whooping. Accept it. Accept the craving. Every craving has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Take the whooping. We swear you won't have to do it alone. Because the last paragraph of chapter 3 says the time and place will come where you will be alone. And if you don't have your hand in God's pocket, woe is you. I love you. I wish you the best. I want to urge you, urge you to take advantage of this incredible opportunity that's been afforded to you. If you're new here, I urge you to take this as seriously as you possibly can and go out there and have the time of your life. Welcome to AA. Welcome home. Thanks so much. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast, Episode 74. My name is Michael, and I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. The purpose of this show is to spread hope and recovery from alcohol and drug addiction is possible. I am glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. This podcast's only means of support are donations made by listeners like you. Our funds will be used to pay our monthly operating expenses. This is not a for-profit venture. I want to keep these episodes advertisement-free, so please help support us by visiting SoberShares.com and clicking on the Donate button. Please email us your questions, comments, or show ideas to Mike, M-I-K-E, at SoberShares.com. The talk you're about to hear was recorded in the year 2004 at the Texas State Convention. Now I'm going to turn it over to our guest, Scott R. Take it away, brother. My name's Scott Redmond. I'm an alcoholic. Can you hear me okay? My friend Cliff Roach was uh, at a meeting once, and uh, a guy in the back of the room yelled to the speaker, I can't hear you, and a guy in the front row yelled, I can, let's switch seats. Um, Today is my 28th wedding anniversary. And the reason why I'm here on my anniversary is Char asked me to talk so long ago I wasn't married yet, I don't think, at that particular time. So. <laughs> Can I see the hands of the people in their first year? Wow. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Man, oh man. Welcome, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, uh, that is really exciting. Uh, I'd like to welcome you today. If you're a drug addict, I'd like to welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're a, a dope fiend, which is somehow worse than any of us, I'd like to welcome you to AA. If you're uh, like the Bigfoot of dope addicts or a dope Goliath, um, welcome to AA. I'd like to welcome all the tweakers. Welcome, tweakers. Glad you're here. Yeah, right. There, she's got her arm up. She doesn't even remember why she put her arm up. But welcome to AA. I'm glad you're here. You're special, and I love you. And, um, and I love you guys. You stay quick for a while. Every part of your face is moving in a different direction. If you've ever licked all the features off your own face, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. We're glad you're here. I'm not making fun of you. I'm coming close. Um... <laughs> But I'm really not making funny, and I'll tell you why. I don't care what you are. 
I don't care if you're a crack monster. Ooh, that's scary. Crack monster. Ooh. <laughs> I don't care what you are. Just catch alcoholism. Catch alcoholism. We'd love to give it to you. Um, I was not an alcoholic when I came to AA. I did not have alcoholism. I, uh, I caught alcoholism in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And it took a lot of them. And the more I go to, the worse my alcoholism gets. I, uh, I developed a very mild case at first, and, uh, and it's gotten worse. The infection enters through the ear. <clears throat> uh, but I could not possibly have been alcoholic. So if you're not alcoholic, I want to welcome you to AA and urge you to stick around long enough to get a diagnosis. If you have been building up a bright outlook for yourself and your family and ripping it down around your ears in a senseless series of sprees, you could be alcoholic. If you fail to recall with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and pain and agony of, of a day, a week, a minute ago, you could be alcoholic. If you um, protect your right to vomit, uh, you could be alcoholic. If you're not alcoholic, what is wrong with you? Really, what, what, is, what is wrong with you? You might, catching alcoholism might be a lofty goal. I mean, it really... Uh, but I was not alcoholic when I got here for a lot of reasons. Um, number one, I'm Jewish, and Jews don't drink. Because it might dull the pain. And, uh, you know. <laughs> you don't want to squander any agony opportunity. And I had done something that many of us do in different situations. I had clung on to this idea that as a Jew, uh, 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 that kind of suffering was, uh, was something that I was attached to. Just like any members of different races and creeds and religions can identify and cling on to some fake identity, which can't stand up to the light of God. Those things become transparent and they disappear. But that was my idea. You know, and it's an idea that I discarded many years ago. Otherwise, I don't know that I'd be sober today. Um, in addition to the Judaism, I could not possibly have been alcoholic. I had been in psychotherapy for 18 years. I was going to be dead, but I was going to understand it. And uh, I'm not putting uh, therapy down. Uh, therapy's great stuff. It says on page 133 of our book, and I love your theme this year, and I love those two pages of recorded. I love the reading uh, that was done tonight. But it says on page 133, if you need a doctor, go get one. That's not too clear, is it? And I don't, uh, I don't have malpractice insurance, so I don't tell people what to take or where to go. Uh, uh, the fact is, is, and by the way, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm going to ask you one favor tonight. Please don't take anything I say about AA or what I'm doing in AA as a personal indictment of what you're doing. I have no idea what you should do in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm convinced this is why God made more than one of us. So we would have different kinds of behavior in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, there's stuff that people do in AA that I would be drunk in two seconds, and there's stuff that I do that people would look at me and go, you call that sponsorship? You know? And I'm convinced that, that uh, uh, I've just been asked to do tonight, I've been asked to do what, what the stories in the book were asked to do. I'm, I'm supposed to tell you about this journey I've had to a power that has brought about a personality change sufficient enough to bring about sobriety. And just like it says in the beginning of the book, I don't mean to piss anyone off. That's a paraphrase. And, um, uh, and if I do, Shar's right here with a wreath. She asked me to talk. Talk to her. I, I, I don't, 
Uh, don't see me after the meeting to straighten me out or to correct any details. Write her a letter, you know, and rip it up. At any rate. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, uh, I was in therapy, and I, uh, it was like going, uh, I, my, there was nothing wrong with therapy. I had good therapy, but my colossal mistake is I was trying to treat my alcoholism with psychotherapy, which is like showing up at a gunfight with a knife once a week and just getting these colossal ass poundings, you know. And uh, the idea of therapy, and, and uh, Andres read it tonight, we, we long felt that some form of moral psychology was necessary. That's, that's self-examination with a moral application, not what I was doing, which was self-examination with uh, self-examination. Uh, it uncover, discover. And, and the, my problem is, is I've, you see, I've got anxiety. I'm, I'm a neurotic. I don't know if, any, if that resonates for anyone here. I don't know if anyone here has ever been called neurotic. But the idea of a neurosis is you get anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. And then you come up with a solution for the anxiety. And it's worse than the anxiety. <laughs> your, your solution is worse than your problem. I don't know if that resonates for anyone here. Okay. So I've got anxiety. I'm, I'm resolving it in terrible, terrible ideas, right? And it's getting worse and worse. So I go to the therapist. And I got anxiety. What's the matter? I feel terrible. I, uh, I was so drunk today. I was too drunk to walk, so I drove. Well, what are we going to do about that? Let's talk about it. I got an idea. What were you thinking just before you did it? Nothing. <laughs> nothing. How are you going to treat nothing? It would take a board of therapists 24 hours a day, seven days a week to file my stuff. Just to file it, to do intake on it. Just to put it on a shelf in a folder. Because alcoholism's too efficient. It does its job way too efficiently. It generates anxiety and insanity at such a horrific rate. There's no way to stack therapy up to it. Not my therapy. No way. Um, at any rate, I did not have alcoholism when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I had a terrible, terrible journey to AA. To AA. I don't know if anybody heard Mark uh, talk last night. Um, Mark, really, in terms of a bottom, really brings the bar way down. Um, more, you know, by the time his story's over, you, he came to AA packed in 27 mason jars. It's, uh, you just want to go up and touch him at the end of it. It's <laughs> pretty remarkable. Um, but I had a terrible journey to Alcoholics Anonymous. I uh, grew up in the Bronx uh, to a completely insane family. My uh, wife never believed me about my family until she met him. And um, my mom threw an engagement party for us, and uh, my Aunt Rose came and wore her wig backwards, and it had a bun on it. <laughs> and uh, um, the whole night, the bun was bouncing off her forehead, and uh, this was not a mistake. This was a look she was going after. She kind of wore it askew, kind of like a beret. And um, <laughs> if, you, if, you, uh, if you got anything for free in my family, it meant it was stolen. And um, I had an uncle who was a welder who used to get free bales of steel wool. <laughs> like, here's your check and your complimentary bale of steel wool. <laughs> and his, his wife took a decorating course and made throw pillows and filled all the throw pillows with the free steel wool. <laughs> now, that stuff works its way through on you after a while. So when you were at their house, if you looked at the room 
Everybody was moving a little bit, you know? The whole room was like a pulsing, breathing, living organism. They were psycho, absolutely psycho. And um, there was uh, mental and physical abuse and chronic institutionalization, suicide attempts. Uh, and if you're new here, all I've got is good news. Because <laughs> my family didn't have one thing to do to, with making me an alcoholic. I'm not telling you that they didn't injure me. I was terribly injured as a child, and I'm not telling you I haven't had to do a lot of stuff to deal with that. I have. Uh, but I'm telling you they didn't make me an alcoholic, because that's a whole other animal. I cannot control or moderate once I drink. I'm a member, if you're new, I'm a member of a really small, relatively small group of people who actually are allergic to alcohol. And if you're special and a drug addict, uh, try some controlled crack smoking, you know? Uh, just uh, fill your mouth up with crack smoke and say I'm not in the mood and blow it out. And, uh, <laughs> and hats will fill the air. We'll make you president. Um, <laughs> um, and that wouldn't be so bad if I didn't have this nutty thinking. I mean, it would be okay. People who are, are uh, allergic to strawberries don't eat strawberries. They even are careful. They say, hey, is there any strawberries in that? Because if there are, I'm not going to eat them. They're real careful about it. They don't buy strawberries. They don't have strawberries. But I've got this nutty, nutty thinking that goes, strawberries, schmawberries. Who cares, right? Because my alcoholism goes below the horizon. It stops presenting itself as a real piece of business. And I drink again. No matter what. No matter what. And I still have that kind of thinking. That's why I do more in AA than I have since I came in on April 22nd, 1985. I do more today. And that's who I've hung out with since I became a member. Those who are who my sponsors are and who have been. The people who, when things get good, they do more. And when things get bad, they do more. They just do more. And because um, I still have this thinking. I was about 14 years sober a couple of years ago. I'm 19 years in now. And it's about 14 years sober, and I had to uh, get surgery on my hand. And the doctor said, you know, Mr. Redmond, you're going to need general anesthetic. And uh, I said, general anesthetic? That's great. <laughs> That's great. Normal people don't get excited about general anesthetic? There's no normal person that goes, oh, oh. And I'll tell you why. Because <laughs> you're generally anesthetized for it. You're unconscious. And there's one thing they remember which I forget. There's going to be an operation. I forget that. That's, forget about that, right? <laughs> oh, man. But I know some about general anesthetic, and some of you know it too. When they hit you with it, they say count backwards from 100. And you go 100, 99. <laughs> I love 99. I love 99. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, I'm like 17 years sober, and I go to a different doctor, and he says, you know, I see you're going to need the same surgery on your other hand, the surgery that you had on this hand. And I looked at him, I said, uh, I guess we'll be having some of that general anesthetic there. <laughs> and he looks at me like I'm nuts. He says... You don't need general anesthetic with that operation. And my first thought was, no, I need another doctor is what I need. 
but I didn't go get one because my sponsor. <laughs> if you don't tell them these things, you then go get a second opinion. At any rate, uh, I have this nutty thinking that keeps driving me to take a drink I can't stop taking, and I developed this cancer of the soul, this spiritual tapeworm that ate me up from the inside and left me hollow and insane and alone. And I'm sorry, my family doesn't have the power to make that person. They're not alchemists. They're not wizards. They can't come up with that horrifying, hopeless mix. Only the disease of alcoholism is capable of that. Um, I uh, grew up in the Bronx. I wanted to be a good guy. I didn't seem to be able to act that way. My dad was a hard-working guy. He worked as a bartender and made $10,000 a year. And My brother and I never went to school with ripped clothing and never missed a meal. I grew up in a, a very loving, insane home where things were very consistent. You know, And... Um, I uh, started drinking real young. I got thrown out of a gang um, who, uh, who was stealing cars. And uh, I went and, uh, went and joined the hippies. They had no, um, no uh, uh, paperwork or anything. There wasn't a test. Uh, this is around 1965, 1966. And I, you know, I didn't want to be an alcoholic like I was with those gre- the greasers I was hanging out with. I was 12, 14 years old. I, and I, so I started, I, I overcame my alcohol problem with marijuana. I'd like to welcome all the pot smokers here tonight. You remember WOW, right? WOW. 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 And right after WOW usually came... What? What? WOW! What? WOW! What? WOW! What? What? WOW! What? Watching a pot smoker is like watching a dog try to run on linoleum. There's, you know, there's like a lot of movement, activity actually, no movement at all, but a lot of activity. They just can't get a claw in the rug. I, uh, I kicked that gall darn uh, marijuana with pills. <laughs> I triumphed over pills with cocaine. Cocaine is an excellent drug. It's particularly good for sex if you enjoy sex from the Neolithic period. Um, and then I... Uh, Overcame that galtorn. Cocaine with heroin. Heroin's a very dark, complicated, artistic drug. And uh, then you cross the line and become a vomiting pig. And uh, alcohol was on the table every day. And I uh, started therapy when I was 14 and moved from substance to substance and started dying from alcoholism. And I wasn't even close to catching it. I was in my early 20s. I was hitchhiking down the West Side Highway from the Bronx to Manhattan. And my aunt and uncle pulled up in a car, and my father had had a massive stroke. And I was taken to the hospital, and I couldn't show up for my old man the night that he died. I couldn't even go into the room and touch him on the cheek and give him a kiss and tell him I loved him. I was a pig, an animal who didn't deserve to be in the same world as him. And the ice around my heart had, uh, had become so thick by that time, and I had so rearranged my life to accommodate the walk to the drink that... Uh, I was, I was dead. I, I couldn't even fit the pain in my head. And I had to do some very quick work that night. I, had to, I, had to, I couldn't be that guy. Uh, I, and I figured out real quick it was heroin and needles, and all I had to do was never put a needle in my arm again, and I wouldn't be the guy who couldn't show up for his old man. And that's, that's what I did. I did not. I didn't touch a needle from that night forward.
until I did. <clears throat> Shortly after that, I was acting in a Broadway play, and a new usherette with long brown hair walked in. I took one look at her. I didn't even say hello to her. I walked back into the dressing room, got on top of a chair in the male dressing room, and announced to the male members of this cast that if anybody talked to the new usherette with long brown hair, I'd break all the bones in their hands and feet. And, uh, and today is our 28th wedding anniversary. <laughs> and why I'm here really is for the same reason that Zelda and Mark went and talked when their kid was in the hospital. It's the same reason. I don't got a marriage. I don't got nothing without you. That's not true. I got a lot of something without you. A lot of pain, a lot of agony. And um, Nancy and I just, oh, we just fell in love. The earth just opened up beneath us. We had a great time. I mean, one of the most misquoted and misused lines in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous for me. And, and look, if you're new, you are going to hear wacky stuff about alcoholism. You're going to hear some wacky stuff. Some of it might work for you. Some of it might not. Some of it has worked for me and not. I've never found any of the stuff that not. Never found it in that big blue book. Never. And, but it, it works for some. I've heard that alcoholics don't like change. I don't like change I don't like. But I love change that I like. I, I like it. <laughs> I've never heard anyone get to the podium and say, well, I hit the lottery and I'm having sex with identical twins. It's killing me. I, I just uh, <laughs> can't stand this change. Um, <laughs> I've heard that alcoholics are perfectionists. I'm a pig. I'm a pig. I'm not a perfectionist. I, the only time I become a perfectionist is when my wife is caring for me. Then I'm explosively perfectionistic. Then I'm, I, I really, my favorite, though, is that alcoholics are above average intelligence. I have only heard this at Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. <laughs> I have never heard it at an Al-Anon meeting, ever. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for a few announcements. Please remember to visit SoberShares.com to listen to all of our episodes, leave us a show review, and to access our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and soon to come, YouTube. You can also email me directly at Mike at SoberShares.com. A financial donation to this show may be made by clicking the Donate button on our website. This donation process is simple, and your generosity will allow us to continue to bring you this show advertisement-free. And now I'd like to mention a few listeners by name that helped us out with a contribution this past week. Thank you, Damon D., Dina S., Kristen S., Veronica R., James C., Vanessa C., and David R. Thank you very much. And now let's cover some feedback that we received via our Facebook Sober Shares podcast page. Helen M. writes, Thank you for what you do. God bless you. It really helps my program. Edmund D. says, I look forward to each and every episode. Thank you so much for all the work. Kyle H. says, Thank you so much for making this podcast. I started listening about three months ago, and I started with the more recent episodes and then went back to the beginning with episode one, and I'm now moving forward through all 74 episodes. I have listened to almost every one, 
and I'm always hearing something that I needed to hear at that particular moment. Thank you very much. The next one is from Sean M. He says, thanks, bro. Keep up the great work. You are helping to save lives. God bless you. The next one comes from our Spotify page, and they are specifically referring to episode 51, which was the Bob Cady episode, which is one of the guests that we had on that had 60 continuous years of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he actually met and knew Bill Wilson. So go back if you have time and listen to the Bob Cady episode 51. This feedback pertains directly to that episode. Christina W. says, wow, Bob's episode was wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Ron says, excellent episode, and what a wonderful, well-done podcast overall. Bob was so articulate and fun to listen to. James E. writes, Hi, Mike. I just discovered the talks the other day. I'm approaching six months of recovery and really enjoying listening to the interviews while working on a car repair project. So far, I'm on episode five. I hope you are still doing this project because it helps me. So I'm absolutely sure it's helping others as well. God bless you. I would enjoy corresponding with you. Sincerely, James E. Well, James, I appreciate you, brother. I love you guys. I care about you guys. And now, back to our guest, Scott R. And I've heard people in AA say, you know what? My worst day in the here is better than my best day out there. No. No. I had such a good time out there. Such a good time when I was having a good time. You know? Let's see. Let's see. An all-female jazz band, a pound of cocaine, or a panel to the prison. I don't know. What do I like to do? Uh, my, my worst day in here, what, what actually the book says, on the end of chapter three, what the guy says is, I wouldn't trade my worst day in here for my best day out there, because I won't trade this way of life. I won't do it. I won't live like a sap anymore. I won't settle for a nickel today when I could have a quarter tomorrow. I won't do it. And I don't have to do it, because my alcoholism presents. It doesn't slide below the horizon anymore and stop presenting itself as a real piece of business. You know? um, Nancy and I got married, and uh, she became very troubled. And um, she started getting very sick. Uh, we became so sick that at one point a guy lent us his car, and we sold his car. <laughs> I will never forget this guy's voice on the phone as long as I live. He said, you sold my car? I, what are you talking about? I lent you my car. That's like, it's like house sitting for someone, and they come back and you're in escrow. What, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> but the alcoholic life becomes the only normal one. We didn't have money for rent, no, really. And, uh, and I looked into my wife's eyes, and I said, I am so sick of being a punk, irresponsible kid. Let's stand on our own two feet. Let's do the right thing. Let's sell the car. And my wife looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, let's do. <laughs> um, I came home one day. We had these 32-ounce iced tea tumblers in the house. I popped a cork on a bottle of wine. I emptied the entire bottle of wine into one of these tumblers. And I turn around, and my wife is giving me her pre al rat face. <laughs> and I said, what? She said, what are you doing? And I looked at her. And I said, I'm having a glass of wine. 
What the hell do you think I'm doing? Can't a man have a glass of wine in his own home? Now, what are you going to do? Are you going to debate that? Are you going to debate? Are you going to get the dictionary out? What's a glass? Oh, man. Man, oh, man. Our son, Michael, was born, and we were surrounded by friends and family. We got a ton of phone calls. He was really welcomed into our community. And two years and nine months later, when our son, Jesse, was born, there was no one at the hospital, no friends, no family, no phone calls. And just two years and nine months, we had so, we just, we pressed ourselves on the people that loved us like a thumb upon a bruise. It hurt too much to be around us. And Jesse was sick. You had to go in neonatal intensive care. And that night, this doctor who I had never met before, a huge hospital in, in Los, we were living in Los Angeles by that time, she said, you know, Mr. Redmond, your wife's in extreme psychological duress. There's no one here. The baby's in an incubator. What, what is he? What, where are you? And I said, you know what? The fact is, is I can't find anybody to watch my two-year-old kid. And this doctor who I had never met before said to me, you know, my, my husband is home. I'll give you my phone number and my address. You can take your son to my house, and my husband will watch him so you can be with your family. And I said no. I had no way to accept this woman's generosity. And now my poor kid, Micah, has got to be locked in the house with this insane man racked with guilt and remorse. I would have done better to take him down to the hospital and leave him with a coloring book in the waiting room. At least he could have got the hell away from me. And this is, you know, and, and Bill says it in his story, you know, he paints this horrifying picture. And for us, this was our heart, this is all alone, completely isolated by alcoholism. And, and little were we to know it was going to go on for almost three more years. You know, and I, I mean, one would say that's enough, you know, to be, to have, have your, have this tiny, I didn't come into AA with this big anger. I came into AA with this pathetic, I was like a tiny, incredibly painful wound. And um, this is where we wound up. We started on Broadway. This is where we wound up. This was a good night in the Redmond home. Good night in the Redmond home. Good day in the Redmond home. I, I got into an accident, and um, I, uh, they took me to the hospital. My blood pressure was about 160 over 110. They said, Mr. Redmond, you're going to have to, your, your, your blood pressure's got to come down. Are you marking me? <laughs> Am I getting notes or what? Okay, thank you very much. Um, uh, he's doing paperwork. I'm talking. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> Can I have the sergeant in arms up here, please? What a suit, huh? You sit. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, the doctor said you have to lose weight. And I said, you know what? I would like to do that, but I drink alcohol and smoke marijuana before I go to bed every night. So I'm not going to be able to. And the, doc <laughs> the doctor said to me, why don't I prescribe some medication for you? And I said, what a country. And what he prescribed for me was a, a drug called chloral hydrate, which is a, a, a mickey. It's a fast-acting uh, tranquilizer. It's just like getting hit in the head with a sap. And I love these pills. I love, love my knockout drops. So Nancy comes home. I'm eating handfuls of knockout drops. And I'm slamming my arms into the wall to keep myself awake so I can enjoy my knockout drop. Because you don't want to waste a perfectly good knockout drop. So I'm eating handfuls of these pills, smashing body parts into the wall until I just seize and kill 
over, and now I'm going up into bed, and now I'm incontinent like the rest of the 33-year-old men in America. Uh, <laughs> because I can't get out of bed to go to the bathroom because I got so much Mickey in me. And one night I got up and wet the wall and Nancy was excited. It's like, honey, you're, you know, we got some movement here. You're headed towards the bathroom. She was dead serious. This was, you know, she made me a big breakfast, which I ate and puked up and, and uh, we got things moving there. About four months, about six months before I got sober, I got a job uh, directing the TV show in Dallas, and I was down there for a while, and I wound up working for a guy in Texas, and I got a running start on my bottom in Texas like nobody's business. And I'm a kid from the Bronx, and now I'm in Texas, and I'm cooked all the time. And they're sending me out into the West Texas desert with a full Panavision crew, and I'm a tongue-chewing, babbling idiot. I'm standing with the guy I'm working for, and I turn around, and there's some huge black birds, and I went, what the hell? And he said, they're turkey buzzards. I said, oh my God, they're vultures. Those are vultures. He says, you ain't got no vultures? I said, no, we don't have any vultures. <laughs> and the guy says, what eats things when they die? <laughs> this guy had a lot of dough and he had an airplane, a little, little jet airplane. There ain't no such thing as a little jet, you know, if you have a jet, you have a jet, right? So we're up in his jet, we're scouting locations, and um, uh, the pilot says, hey, director, come on up here, look at the window. And I went, I'm not going anywhere. I smelled some, was brought up in the Bronx, you know? And I, I sat in my seat, the producer gets up with a cocktail, starts walking towards the front of the plane, and they barrel rolled the plane three times. Because that's their deal. <laughs> you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna get one of these Jews to stand up going to be fun. See his yarmulke fall off when the thing goes around and around. <laughs> and it pounded into the ground like a na He was like a shimmering bowl of jello. Not one drop poured out of his drink. And I, I fell in love with these guys. I fell in love with Big T, you know. And he had, he had a, a swimming pool in the shape of a cowboy boot outside of his house, man. And I was just in seventh heaven. I was drinking with kings, you know, walking with giants. But they knew how to stop. You know, and uh, I wound up back in Los Angeles uh, after this job, and and, uh, and on. Uh, by that time, our sons were just crippled. They were six and three. Uh, that was the last job for me. I had to get out of L.A. for anybody to hire me. And when I got back to L.A., um, there there was nothing for me there. My life and career had just slid out between my fingers like a handful of water, over and over and over again. And uh, my younger son was three, my older son was four. Uh, my younger son couldn't stop pretending that he was a robot, and I mean couldn't stop. Uh, and not a healthy game. He, uh, it just, it hurt too much to be a, a person. And it just, and he got locked into that world. My older son was reading and writing years below his grade level. His small motor skills were screwed up. Uh, and, I, and, I, and there was nothing organically wrong with him. They were so scared all the time they were so disrupted by living in an active alcoholic home. And if you're new here, God bless you. Welcome to AA. If you can stop, if you can take advantage of this opportunity that's been afforded you, if you're not drinking, and you can stand and take the whooping, God bless you, man.
It was terrible. Absolutely terrible, you know? And I didn't know. I hadn't read the second and third chapters. I didn't know about the, the warped lives of blameless wives and children. I didn't know what was wrong with my kids. I didn't know that the fact that they were aimlessly aggressive en route to a goal that never got achieved, or they would just throw the towel in it and say, what's the use anyway? I didn't know that that was alcoholism. That's hardcore, basic template of the thinking that gets hardwired into alcoholics and their families. That's been my experience. It's been my experience in my family, and it's been my experience working with families coming in. And on April 22nd, 1985, I crossed the line. I swore I never, ever, ever would cross again. I put a needle in my arm. And uh, why? Why not? It was time. And I have no idea why I didn't continue to do it. Don't know. It's a complete mystery to me. It's an absolute mystery to me. Even though my life was in that shambles, my life had been in the shambles two years and nine months before when we were all alone at the hospital. But I called my therapist of record in my 18th year of psychotherapy, my first Jungian therapist. I told him what I had done, and he said to me that day the exact same thing that Carl Jung told the man who 12-stepped the man who 12-stepped Bill Wilson. I didn't know this until I, was going to, until I read our literature, and it really made me feel good when I read it. He said to me, there's absolutely nothing that can be done for you. And I said, what? He said, I can't help you. The only thing I can suggest is we have you institutionalized. And then he said something that Carl Jung couldn't say. He said, or you attend a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, why I went to the AA meeting, couldn't tell you. I, I like general anesthetic. I get excited about dental surgery. A nut house, that's a chance to be with my people, colorful and adventurous people. Um, and that's an uninterrupted source of narcotics uh, for a period of time. So I, I don't I have no idea. It is an absolute mystery to me why I went to that AA meeting. But I did. I woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. I got a bad check to write you. and went down to a place called Unit A in the San Fernando Valley. Um, which Nancy Ann knows, it's the end of the world, <laughs> basically. And, uh, and I walked into this room, I took one look around, and I said, oh my God, how did I wind up in Alcoholics Anonymous? How? How lame is this? This is beyond lame. This is beyond church, beyond synagogue. This is some plateau of lameness I never even imagined was available to me. Alcoholics Anonymous. And everything was a miracle. I'm a miracle. You're a miracle. You're just a miracle. The furniture and coffee are miracles. The miracle. I, I, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And the room looked like it was the product of like 200 years of inbreeding to me, you know? There were like identical twins carving their initials on each other's feet in the back of the room. I mean, that, that's the way it looked to me. And I'm waiting for the Jew hunt to break out. I know that's going to start any minute, right? Come on, Jaime, strap these antlers on. Always wanted to run a big buck Jew. <laughs> then at the end of the meeting, the AA unsolicited information guy, he came, you know him, right? He came up to me. Do I want what you've got? No. No. But thanks for spitting on me, Clyde. I really appreciate it. But the kind of bully I am, I won't tell the guy to go screw off. I grin and I nod, you know, and I just pray that his face will burst into flame, you know. 
that will just go up in a column of smoke. I'm here. Isn't it bad enough that I'm here in Alcoholics Anonymous? I went back to that meeting every morning for a year. And I'll tell you why I think I did. I think I did because I was out of plans. And if you're new here, I pray for you that you're out of plans. Are you marking me now? What the hell is, is this like a test? I start talking, these guys do paperwork. Is anybody? Is, I was out of plans. If you're new here, I pray for you. I pray that you're out of plans. If you're new and you have a plan, it's probably a butte. Don't use your plan. Grab one of us after the meeting and tell us your plan. We want to know the plan. The most utilized newcomer plan I have run across, and I know it's big in San Antonio, I know it, is the one more dope deal to set myself up financially for sobriety plan. I got a buddy that lives out near Mark who is sponsoring this guy. This, this guy raised the bar. Uh, about a year or two ago, this guy was sponsoring a guy who was sober for a while, stopped doing the work, drifted away, got drank, got two DUIs in rapid succession. Small town in Nebraska. And the guy came up with a plan. And this is a plan. He didn't want to go to jail. He made five Molotov cocktails. He went down to the small county courthouse in the small town. He put a... He <laughs> was this one of your guys? Oh my God, I'll try to get it right. He put one Molotov cocktail on each corner of the building. Now, I've never read the instructions on a Molotov cocktail, but I believe throwing is involved at some point. They, They might even have, you know, the universal sign for throwing, this. And then he took the fifth cocktail, laid down in his car and fell asleep, right? Now, this guy, he didn't get 40 AA meetings. He's probably in Guantanamo Bay with a black hat on, right? I mean, yeah. So, if you're new, I really hope you're out of plans. I, I really hope. And I went back to that meeting, and I uh, stuck around Alcoholics Anonymous. My wife reached out to the Allen on family groups, and I just can't tell you how much I appreciate the great atmosphere in and around Allen on that I've heard and seen and felt and tasted this weekend. It makes me proud. It makes me so glad. Because when I was a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous, there was a time or two where I would go to meetings and I would hear people telling jokes about Al-Anon. And I'm not talking about good-natured, wonderful jokes. I've told a few tonight. I'm talking about mean, ignorant jokes. And and until I stuck around long enough to find out that these were just mean and ignorant people, although I judge no man. Um, But until I stuck around long enough to know that, I was very confused and very injured by it because my wife had reached out to the Al-Anon family groups and I was really proud of her and really glad she did. And I'd sit in my seat and I'd go, man, isn't this like, isn't this what we're supposed to be doing? I mean, can you imagine going to a meeting and hearing people tell ignorant, ill-tempered, untruthful jokes about Alcoholics Anonymous? I, I know that as a member of AA, I'd think, oh, you can't. Imagine how wrong you are. You don't have any information. You know, this is not based on any real information. You know, so if you're doing that on a public level, uh, that's your vote, is that it's okay to do. 
I, I used to have all the votes. I've been whittled down to just this one measly vote by good sponsorship. Damn. And um, my vote is that it's not okay because there might be a newcomer uh, and a family that's making a beginning here and getting it going. And uh, I think we have, I think I have a responsibility as part of the responsibility edict in AA to blow on the embers of that fire, you know, and, and make that 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 burn. And we had a lot of insane rules in our house. My kids were not allowed to eat sugar, curse, or watch TV. So my wife would uh, give them granola for breakfast and put them in the car with me, Dr. Death. And say, hope you live, boys. You've had a hearty breakfast and hope you make it back. Um, and she would take the boys over to her Al-Anon sponsor's house, Ruby, who is still her sponsor today. And Ruby would... Uh, give him a big bowl of M&M's, turn on the love boat, sit him down in front of the TV, and cuss up a storm. Cuss up a storm. I'll use one bad word, and if it really bugs you, talk to Char later. But it's just one little one, just a little one. Her husband, Milton, who was 10 years sober at the time, called my sons over. We needed, we were made out of wood. We needed to be lightened up. We needed to be loved up. We needed to, our circulation to start again. And Milton called the boys together. They were little, little boys. And he said, boys, your parents don't know shit. <laughs> <laughs> and my kids went, oh, my God, we suspected, but now it's been confirmed. This is like, this is fantastic, fantastic for them to hear that there's an elephant in the living room, that they've been insane. I stuck around AA six months. I enjoyed the gift of step none. I was doing nothing and receiving nothing, and I was getting nuttier and nuttier. And I knew I was going to drink because I had seen the AA drill hundreds of times uh, from the time I came in. And people came in, did the work, and changed. People came in, didn't do the work, didn't change, got terribly ill. And I asked God to sponsor me, a great guy. And he made sure I had done some reading from the big book of AA, and he invited me to his house. And he read chapter five to me. We took me through the first two steps. We reached step three and got on our knees and said a prayer, which I felt was unnecessary and embarrassing, but I did it anyway. <laughs> and then he went back and he gave me instructions on how to do a fourth step. I, I will tell you this. I stopped feeling like I was stealing somebody's chair here. I really did. I stopped feeling like I was stealing someone's seat. I came back to him at nine months of sobriety, three months later, and I read my inventory to him. And I will tell you this, I feel lucky that I stayed sober long enough to do that inventory at six months. And if you knew, you know, we, we, some of us get so excited if you actually stop drinking. The, the not drinking part's a moose. If it wasn't for the not drinking part, we would be a much bigger organization. I guarantee it. Our, our ranks would swell, really, if it wasn't for the Galdar not drinking thing. <laughs> Here's a weird thing. If you're new, when you want to drink, don't. <laughs> but we get excited when someone stops drinking. Some of us get excited and we want, uh, and maybe some of us sound like we're bullying or being pushy, but some of us, I think, we are so anxious to see you try to get a crowbar into this thing and keep this portal open. Keep this because we see these opportunities disappear so quickly sometimes. So forgive us our exuberance. I sensed my portal could certainly close. 
Uh, I didn't think I was going to stay sober on my wife's participation in Al-Anon. Thank you. I read my inventory to my sponsor, and he changed my life that day in the reading of that inventory. And I'm going to tell you quickly how he did that. I had a lot of different resentments against myself for being a rotten dad, against my wife for being a rotten wife, and uh, against my kids for being sick, and against my father for being dead. Oh, how horrible it was to admit that. And I began against myself for not showing up when he died. I had a terrible resentment against Nazis for slaughtering Jews. I'd seen all these horrible movies when I was a kid at religious school. God, my sponsor changed my life that day. I read this uh, resentment against Nazis. I'm resentful of Nazis. You see, I don't just dislike stuff. I hate stuff. And when I hate stuff, I hate it so that when I wake up, I water my hatred like a little flower. I want to make sure it's okay, you know? I like it developing and growing nicely. The worst thing, worst thing is when I forget to hate something, you know? And a guy goes, hi. And I go, hi. Oh, I hate him. Why did I do that? That's terrible. Now I'm going to, like, have to redouble my snubbing and glaring, you know? It's awful after you, you do all that work, you know? Um, I hate so that when my head hits the pillow, it becomes a rotisserie. It eats my brain and my heart and turns my life black. I, it's, a, it's a horrible spiritual sickness. It's the, spirit, it's the source of all spiritual disease, the great destroyer of all alcoholics. So I read Amr's Amphila Nazis for slaughtering Jews during World War II. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook ambition, personal relations, and sex. What are the defects in me that if God would remove the resentment would be gone? Blue skies, magic wand. God's got a magic wand. He comes and he touches me on the head. What poison in me, if it disappeared right now, would this resentment would be gone? And I didn't have a list. I had one defect. I was a coward, too scared to kill them. And my sponsor, this is what he said to me, and it's, it has impacted everything I've done since. He said, uh, you know, on page 62, there's a paragraph, if you're new, it's a very unsettling paragraph. It's one of the most concise descriptions of the uncivilized mindset of the, of, of the sick alcoholic. It says selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our problem. Driven. Driven isn't nudged or influenced. <laughs> Driven implies under the lash of, in slavery to. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows, they retaliate seemingly without provocation, but invariably, which means without variation, with no loophole and no exception, I've made, sometime in the past, I've made decisions based on self, which later placed me in a position to be hurt. Bullcrap. Not true. What the hell... What are you talking? I'm talking about Nazis. And my sponsor looked at me in the eye and he did the thing that the big book says over and over and over again. Don't argue with a drunk. By the way, that comes up in Al-Anon too. Um, Don't fight with a drunk drunk. And he said, Scott, you don't understand what they're asking you. They're not asking you if the event was your fault. Was the event your fault? I said, no. He said, was the resentment your fault? Every time with no exception and no loophole. What would a reasonable person do if they, resent, if they resented Nazis? Well, they'd give money to people who fight Nazis. They might show up and go to demonstrations. They might, uh, 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 but they wouldn't experience it as a life-ending spiritual sickness. I had a resentment against my, uh, my aunt for physically abusing me when I was a kid. Um, was the event my fault? In my book, in my world, absolutely not. Absolutely unacceptable to hold the arms of a three-year-old kid. I don't care if I was a brat. I don't give a crap what it was. Not acceptable. Was the resentment my fault? Every time, without exception, and no loophole. 
Because if you came to me and said, I like, you know, what would a reasonable person do if, if they experienced that with their aunt? Well, they might not hang out with their aunt. But if you said, I like your aunt, I'd say, no, you don't, and this is why. They, a reasonable person would just simply not let my aunt care for my children. I would treat her like a sick and troubled person. But I don't experience it that way. And Don changed. Now, is the event sometimes my fault? Quite often. <laughs> Quite often. I don't know that that's the stuff would have killed me. The stuff that would have killed me were the events that weren't my fault, that I was finding it impossible to take responsibility for the resentment. And the opposite of resentment is not always peace, love, and happiness. Sometimes the opposite of resentment is just the absence of murder, okay? It's, it says in the book, I can't be helpful to all people, but I must at least take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. There's some people and some things I don't like and I stay away from them. But I can't live in resentment of them. And Don changed my life, I hope, every day for the rest of my life uh, with that lesson. I did my fifth step. I did six and seven for the first time. And it um, came time to write my eighth step list. I try to share this anytime I talk because it's simply the best reading of step eight I've ever heard. And I heard it when I was real new. At my first home group, first real home group, which was the North Hollywood Men's Meeting and, uh, at Radford Street in North Hollywood. And uh, there, I was a couple weeks sober, and um, there was a guy named Nino there. And I've never seen him before, and I've never seen him since. And I think I was in my first month of sobriety. He had, I had never read Chapter 5 before. He was there with hospital plastic on with a hospital group, and he was reading Chapter 5 for the first time, uh, this, this guy from New York, in front of this men's group. And he got up to step eight, and he read, made a list of all those we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Jesus Christ! (laughs) 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 And he looked out into the room as if to say, have you seen this? (laughs) Do you you know what the hell is in here? It was so beautiful. It it, it was so beautiful. It was the purest reading of the step I have ever heard. Because it's the only thing I saw. Thank you very much. Didn't see anything else. Not those people. Not that money. If I knew I had to give it back, I would not have taken that much money. (laughs) You think I'm stupid? You know, and if you're new, don't worry about it. It's eight steps from where you are anyway. And, And... and eight's not even the annoying one. It's nine. Really, uh, that's the really annoying one. So I wrote up my eight-step list, and I didn't know what the heck I was going to do about it. I didn't know what I was going to do about it. All these people I hated and who I had injured. And my, uh, the, the, the people I owed money to, that's pretty easy. You pay them back. I didn't like that at all, but... Uh, but I didn't know what I was going to do about my wife or my kids or my pop. I just didn't, you know. And um, I had nothing to bring to my marriage, man. Absolutely nothing. I, either, I didn't know how to fight. I didn't know how to be a husband. I didn't know how to clean up after myself. My, I, I would yell at my wife till she shut up or I would cry until she shut up. Either one's fine with me. I love the tyranny of helplessness. I've always loved that. Good cry. And I'm a loomer. I like to loom. I like to loom with a light behind me and get her in a shadow, you know? I like that a lot. I'm big, you know? It's like total eclipse of the Jew if I get her, like, right in there, right? <laughs> and if I can work like a scream, a cry, and a loom in one fight, it's a, that's a hat trick. It doesn't get any better than that. 
And I've got this sick mom. I mean, I, I'm bringing nothing to the party. I don't feel like a grown man. I didn't know grown men make their bed, right? But I don't do house. I think somewhere in the back of my sick mind that a certain amount of housework should equal a certain amount of sex. That there should be like conversion tables on the back of cleaning products of housework to sex. <laughs> so I, I'm not... So I'm cleaning the house and I'm going, hey, baby, I'm done. <laughs> and she's saying, yeah, you're really done, man. You guys told us not to get involved in our first year and we didn't. We stayed the hell away from each other. We really needed to. We needed to, uh, I didn't need to work on myself. Anytime any of the guys I sponsor say, you know, I'm working on myself right now. I want to go, step away from yourself. <laughs> step away from yourself, sir. <laughs> it's a horrible idea. It's a horrible, that's one drunk talking to himself. It's, it's a terrible idea. <laughs> oh, man. And I had to start doing a lot of crap I didn't want to do. I, I had to start going into my kids' school and sitting down with the teachers and saying, the boys have been terribly sick because they've been living with me, and I've been terribly ill. Can you help us? And not once has anyone said no, not one single time. Every time they said, well, yeah, let's test the boys. We've got all sorts of resources, and the boys got tested, and, and they needed special ed class. They needed a lot of help. They said, you know what, they had a great idea. They said, get him into sports. And I never spent a couple of booze bucks to buy my kid a mitt and get him into the Little League. They said, why don't you get him into sports, get him into music. Let's see if the big motor skills will shake down to the little stuff, and let's see if we can get some traction here. So Jesse wanted to play drums, and uh, I didn't have any dough. So I went into the store, and I got a, a drum pad, which is a piece of wood with a piece of rubber and a couple of sticks. And I went back to my home group and I told the guys what I'd done for the same reason that you would do the same if you had the same kind of home group that I have, and I hope you do, because they wanted to know, because they were rooting for us, because they were interested in my family. And my kid had asked me to, you know, asked me for something, and I backed him up. And a couple of months, within a couple of months, the AA drum set showed up at our house. There were a lot of burnout drummers in my group at that time. <laughs> These guys are coming by with these mega-death drums, you know, dude. And uh, <laughs> Jesse had this drum set that when he sat behind, he disappeared. You couldn't even see him. And the same thing happened with Micah. And a couple of years ago, my sons played the House of Blues in L.A., and they burnt the dump down. Burn it down. Playing hip-hop music to a room just packed elbow to elbow with about eight, nine hundred kids. And off to the side is this group of middle-aged weeping alcoholics, you know. <laughs> kids are kind of going, what is with the crying old people, man? What? <laughs> and that's their AA and Al-Anon aunts and uncles that have been following them around for 19 years, you know. A bunch of years ago, we got really injured in the Northridge earthquake. I guess y'all 
heard about it. We were right in the epicenter of it. It was really bad. Our house got wrecked up. I got a physical injury. A guy died right near us, and it, it was miserable, you know. And um, shortly after the quake, I, Nancy and I were at an AA function out of town up in Canada, and uh, this woman came up to me at the function, and she said, oh, and she used to live in L.A., and she said, oh, I'm so glad God got us out of L.A. before the quake. And I said, oh, so he likes you. He likes you, but we're crap, but he likes you. I can't live in that world. I cannot live in the world where God's saying, get him, get the Redmond boy, get him. Get him, no evacuation plan for you, Jew boy, get him. Get him. Turn his wife to salt, kill his goat, put a finger in his eye, get him. Smote his ass. Smote him. Smote anyone he talks to. Smote them all. I cannot live in a world where God is going, well, let's key your car. You're due for a rash. It's boils for you. The annihilator, the great annihilator. I know that God's keeping her sober. It wouldn't keep me sober for ten and a half minutes. I believe the big book of AA. I believe in St. Thomas. I believe the mystics. I believe that to not know God is to not know God, that God is absolute and complete mystery, that none of us can fully comprehend or define that power which is God. And every time I ascribe an intention or a personality to my higher power, I make my life that much smaller. It's hard to live with that mystery. So when I'm, I can take job A or job B and I'm trying to find out what God's will is, my God really just expects me to do my job no matter what job I take. If my children, my children are in just prospering and having a fantastic time, that's what's happening in my house. If my children were annihilated, my God expects me to do my job in Alcoholics Anonymous. He's not annihilating my children. There's no lesson here. There's just... There is a lesson here, and the lesson is, and it's the lesson that I have been shown by people who I love in AA who have lost children to the disease, is how to stay sober and in contact with a conscious contact with God and live in faith, not belief. I used to be really confused, man. Faith for me is not belief. I like my beliefs because I believe in them. They're very comforting to me. Faith to me is the true expression of step two. It's, it's the willingness to expose myself to the truth despite the consequences. It's, it's saying that God could and would, that it could, that it can happen. It's possible. Not that it's going to, not that it should happen, but that it, that, and, and say, I'm going to expose myself to this. I'm going to move forward. If you're new here, you're, you, you are a gorgeous expression of it. If you're new here and you're not drinking, because by your actions, I don't know what's going on in your mind. Might, might be a psychological theme park right now. I don't know. <laughs> but at least your actions are saying, I am willing to not treat my alcoholism with a drink. Because I'll tell you what's happened is, my alcoholism has been buoyed on the shoulders of the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it stays above the horizon as a real piece of business all the time. It has stayed that way for 19 years, every day even when I'm not concentrating on it, even when I'm not focusing on it. You know, and you hear sometimes in AA, and it's true, you know, we have a progressive disease. I'm in here in my 
diseases out there doing push-ups. Not the most sunshiny point of view, but uh, the, the, the other thing I know is that turnaround is fair play. If that's true of my sickness, then that's also true of my recovery. And if I've turned my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand him, and God expresses God's self in the group conscience in front of me, then my life's in your hands, and I couldn't be in a better place. I was about a year sober, and I uh, was online waiting to get uh, by lunch. There was a guy in front of me. He was buying a can of cold 45 mall liquor with, you know, loose change and a half-eaten milk dud and, you know, some <laughs> lint. You know him. And uh, <laughs> he turned around and looked at me, and uh, instead of saying in my best Bronx, what are you looking at, I said, how you doing? He said, you don't know how I'm doing. Nobody knows how I'm doing except for the people in AA. So we went outside and we talked, and that night I went on my first real 12-step call. And I got a hold of a guy with more time than me, and we were told by this other guy to take this guy down to County General Hospital, dump him off at the door. Don't go in because can't, they can't see that he's got any resources. Dump him off at the door and book. Uh, for some reason, we didn't do that. We went through the entire process with this guy. We went all the way up to the alcoholic ward through the whole deal. And about halfway through, this guy turns to us and he says, I feel like I'm dying. And the guy I'm with who's got some time says to him, that's because you are. <laughs> and I pull him aside. I went, because I'm scared he's not going to like us, you know. How could you say that to him, you know. And the guy I'm with says, he's been told to lie that he's got blood in his urine to break his way into a county facility. What am I supposed to say? You're just having a bad day. This is a bad day. You know, years ago, I, I took this guy down to uh, Redgate Memorial Hospital, one of the glamour spots in Southern California. This is a county facility. It's horrifying. And this guy is loaded. He's, he was one of these, and, and uh, he's drunk, and he's sitting with me, and uh, this woman comes in with another drunk on, uh, on crutches, and the guy I'm with looks down at this woman and goes, Hey, baby, what are you doing with that loser? <laughs> Come on down here. Near the end, the last couple of years, my wife, uh, at holiday time, just took the kids and went to Detroit. Just went to her folks. Just evacuated. Starting, like, about the first, the second week in, in, uh, in uh, November. And I used to drink at this bar in Beverly Hills. It was one of the last places I could drink it for free because it was all these guys I used to work with in New York. And the bartender was a friend of mine. And I'm eating my Thanksgiving dinner at the bar. You know, with your little wax cup of cranberry sauce, and it's just pathetic, you know. And um, I remember this night distinctly, because as the night went on, this drunken dentist came in, and he was cooked. He had just gone to a family affair, and he had like a ribbon of drool swinging from his chin. You know, he's one of those guys. And I'm, I'm drinking with him, because I'm drinking for free, and he says to me, I love Thanksgiving. I love it, because all the old people break their bridge work on the turkey bones. <laughs> He said, it's a bonanza, a bonanza, thanks. <laughs> and I remember having one of those moments of going, oh, my God, home for the holidays, you know, <laughs> just horrifying. <clears throat> At any rate, uh, sometime after this, a couple of years after we checked this guy in, a guy I sponsor called me up and he said, you know, uh, just blow up, man. Get off my back. I'm so sick of your crap, this God crap and this book crap and, you know, 
bite me. And uh, uh, he uh, ripped some people off in the program. He stole a car, imagine that, um, and uh, ripped off an apartment, stole some cash. He was making me look pretty bad. And I wanted to sit down and explain a few things to him. And my sponsor said to me, you have so frightfully abused your right to tell people where they stand in the universe, you've lost it. So um, I had to sit down and write a 10-step. I'm resentful at blank for ripping people off in AA and making me look bad. It affects my self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, personal relations, and sex, and the defects in me. I have spiritual pride. I didn't have that till I became a spiritual Goliath. Right? <laughs> How dare this man comport himself thusly after coming into someone of my spiritual caliber? It's hard to believe. I'm a hypocrite, I'm impatient, I'm self-centered, I'm a people pleaser, and I'm a mind reader. Because I think I know what everybody in AA is thinking. My wife has said to me, you're not a mind reader, you're barely a mind user. <laughs> she said it very sweetly, though. One time we were driving in our car, and Nancy's Allen on family, she's been instructed, when things get spin out, I don't know if you've ever had an argument with your significant other, or spins out, starts spinning out a little bit. And my wife and is fond of saying, you know, sweetie, you could be right. You could be right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, we were pretty new, and it started moving. Started, we really started moving in the car, you know. And Nancy said to me, you know, honey, you could be right. But not today. <laughs> not today. It's not your day, big guy. <laughs> and I wrote a 10-step, and I kept my mouth shut. And when this guy found out that he uh, had a fatal illness some months later, he called the county agency, and they said, all we can do is take you down to the, down to the county general and dump you off at the door. I knew that that wasn't true because I had done my job in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he couldn't call anybody else because they had either told him what they had thought of him or he had burnt them out. I was the only guy he could call. So I got to be there for him when he died, when I couldn't be there for my father. And my father came back into my life. And he didn't come back in a flash. What started happening was I realized that when people talked about him, I stopped going like this. I realized I didn't have any, my sons didn't know anything about him. I, didn't, I couldn't keep a picture of him on the wall of my house. And I put pictures of them, and I started telling my kids stories about their grandpa. And you put my hand in my father's pocket. He was lost to me. When I would think about him, it felt like I got hit in the side of the head with a brick. How does that happen? Happy Father's Day. You know, happy, happy Father's Day. <clears throat> in my first year of sobriety, as I told you, I was becoming sort of a spiritual Goliath. And um, I had an uh, overture made to me. I had a, a writing job for 20th Century Fox. And I had an overture made to me uh, to direct the situation comedy, be staff director for a sitcom, which is a big-time job, a lot of dough. And I thought, if I got this job, it would really benefit the men I sponsor. Because <laughs> they would see AA in action. At any rate, uh, I directed one episode of this show. They had a party for the show. I went to the party, and I almost drank. And I was humiliated. And I went to my sponsor. I was humiliated. He said to me, well, I guess you have the show business God. I said, what? He said, well, what keeps you sober? I said, God. He said, okay, God keeps you sober. You didn't get a show business job and you almost drank. So I guess you have the show business God. And he has abandoned you utterly.
So I had a resentment against myself for almost drinking, and I had a resentment against this company for not giving me the job. And when I came into AA, I heard God getting people into relationships, God getting people parking spaces. Not the parking space, God. No. And if you have a parking space, God, and he gives you a space, pass it on. Um, <laughs> what is the 12th step for the parking space, God? At any rate, uh, I had to write the resentment against myself for almost drinking and the company for not giving me the job. And my sponsor said, when you do six and seven today, you better ask God what you got to do, man. You better ask God what kind of, you get better start living in a world big enough so that if you don't get a show business job, you don't drink. And that day when I did six and seven, after reading him the inventory, I said, Pop, you got it. Take show business. I'll do anything. I will do anything. Just keep me sober. And within three months, I was working as a cook on a catering truck. And I looked up to God and I said, I didn't mean this. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? This, is, this wasn't even on the long list. We've had some grotesque misunderstanding. Now, in L.A., when, when they make a TV show or a movie, they hire a caterer. You go and follow everybody around and make chow for them. It's a great gig. It's a lot of dough. It's Teamster dough. You're on a, a movie set on a vehicle, but I'm Scott Redmond. And um, <laughs> the first film that I cater, the executive producer and star of the film is a guy who I've worked with in the business. And he sticks his head on the truck that first morning, and he says, uh, Can I have a burrito? Scott? <laughs> And I said, what's happening, man? And he said, is this your truck? I said, no, but it's my spatula. <laughs> I got home and I called my sponsor and I said, oh, we're getting the gift now. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. He said, sounds like you got a resentment. And man, I worked my ass off at that job. I showed up and showed them how to, I gave them a dime for their nickel. I worked that 10th step. I wound up feeding people who had been my assistant directors, actors who I had directed in TV shows. I would come back to my home group with a new tale of humiliation every week. And the guys would just go, ha, 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 And I got to help some people who felt they had fallen from a height when they came to AA. Because the top rank in Alcoholics Anonymous is child of God. Child of God. It doesn't get any higher than that. You know, my friend Paul, I, I got to help. He felt he had fallen from a height when he came there. And he used to say this prayer. He'd say, Pop, I'm willing to do anything uh, for a living. Just keep me sober. But please don't let it be as bad as what you did to Scott. Please. <laughs> I cooked for about three years. And at the end of three years... I had an overture made to me by a big-time public relations company in New York called Catching Public Relations for a big-time writing job. And I felt at this point that this would really benefit the men that I sponsor. Because <laughs> they had seen me suffer, and now they will see me prosper thusly. And I went nuts. I went absolutely. I had to do a videotape for these guys. I went cuckoo. Before I even found out about the gig... I released it. Me and my sponsor had a good laugh about it. I read the inventory. I was done. Uh, and then a couple of weeks later, I get a call from Ketchum. I didn't get the gig. I was cool with it. Shortly after that, I get a call from my catering company asking me to go to the mountains above L.A. and cater some commercials. 
So I get in the truck, I go up there, and I grab the call sheet, which is this piece of paper that gives you all the info about the shoot, and I see that the commercials are for Ketchum Public Relations. I'm feeding them now. Now I'm feeding them. I look down at the end of the truck, there's a guy videotaping me. I said, what are you doing? He said, we're, we're taping the making of the commercial. He's taping my humiliation. He's going to go back to New York with the tape, and they're going to go, is that Scott Redman with the meatloaf? Oh, my God. I go home, I call the spots. I said, oh, we're getting the gift now. It's kind of like being voted most attractive man on your cell block. It's an honor, but you don't know if you want to pick up the award. I said, this is just a miracle. It's just a... It's just a just such a miracle, miracle, miracle. He said to me, I guess God had enough writers and needed a few cooks today. And then he said, Scott, you told God you wanted to work for Ketchum and you forgot to tell him what you wanted to do. If you're new here, when you want a drink, don't. Stop treating your alcoholism with a drink. Take the whooping. Accept it. Accept the craving. Every craving has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Take the whooping. We swear you won't have to do it alone. Because the last paragraph of chapter 3 says the time and place will come where you will be alone. And if you don't have your hand in God's pocket, woe is you. I love you. I wish you the best. I want to urge you, urge you to take advantage of this incredible opportunity that's been afforded to you. If you're new here, I urge you to take this as seriously as you possibly can and go out there and have the time of your life. Welcome to AA. Welcome home. Thanks so much. That'll do it for another episode of the Sober Shares podcast. That was episode 74. I wanted to let you guys and girls know that I love you guys. I care about you, and you mean a lot to me. I really hope that comes through in the words and the time and the effort and the care that I put into putting these episodes together for you. It's a big part of my sobriety, and it's a big part of my service work to give back to others. One of my favorite parts of the literature of Alcoholics Anonymous is the part that talks about how we are selfish and self-centered to the extreme. And when I'm putting these episodes together, I find it almost impossible to be selfish and think about myself. Because all I'm really concentrating on is trying to create the highest quality, best sounding recovery podcast in the world for you and for your ears. So each one of these episodes I make are custom made for you by me. And I really hope you enjoy them. I love you guys. I care about you. And we'll see you on the next episode of Sober Shares Podcast. Aloha.